find something of value. The higher education community of South Africa is on intellectualization. How central this humanity is. Welcome to The Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Nosipom Gomezulu. Before I learned about the details of photosynthesis, the electromagnetic spectrum, and the special pairs of chlorophyll molecules in each plant cell, I remember learning that if you mix the color of the sun and the color of the ocean, you can make green. This pigment green colors 85% of the Earth's ice-free land and much of its water. Now I was never bothered with the fact that plants look green to us because red light is the most useful wavelength for them. I was just so mesmerized that the magic of photosynthesis was suddenly in my little hands. Now, I could excuse this part of anthropocentric ego by reminding you that I was but a young child when I felt the surge of power by creating green. However, it is worth considering that this anthropocentric impulse to center ourselves in our larger ecosystem is a trait many of us carry unchecked late into our adult years, leading to devastating effects for other creatures and forms of life we share this planet with. For the past month, I've been thinking with the color green. I recall sitting indoors in March 2020, anxious in the middle of our quarantine in South Africa, listening to John Greenmeader's essay, Humanity's Temporal Range. Cloistered away from nature, I listened as he described the length of time that we have been a species. Modern humans, as we are called by paleontologists, have been around for about 250,000 years. He compares this to contemporary elephants, who are at least 10 times older than us. Their temporal range extends back to the Pliocene Epoch, which ended more than 2.5 million years ago. The ongoing pandemic we live in has been instructive in reflecting on what it means to live not just in, but with the fauna, flora, and even sub-microscopic infectious agents such as the coronavirus. Plants teeming with chlorophyll, which gives them their green color, have a much longer temporal range, dating as far back as 1.5 billion years ago. In James Fox's recent book, The World According to Color, A Cultural History, he explains the socio-cultural and historical impact of the color green across our planet's diverse cultures. I was particularly moved to read how our eyes evolved so we could distinguish shades of green more than any other color, that our ancestors' primitive eyes developed their third long-wave cone type precisely to better navigate chlorophyll around them. We learn from Newton's observations that color is not inherent in objects. Rather, the surface of an object reflects some color and absorbs all others. The human eye and brain together then translate this light into color. In my first language, Isuzulu, the word for the color green and the color blue is the same, Elushaza. I think there's something poetic about these colors sharing the same name, which makes me consider, if only tangentially, how my home language helps me reflect the interconnectedness of life-giving forces of our planet. Isizulu is not the only language that doesn't have separate terms for blue and green, instead using one term for both. Linguists sometimes use the term guru to describe such words. We see this in Vietnamese, for example, where both tree leaves and the sky are described by the same name. Similarly, in Thai, the word that means green is also used to describe the sky. In our contemporary world, which geologists have come to describe as the Anthropocene, the color green elicits a range of associations, from the lush and hopeful gardens of Eden to the socioeconomic and political implications of, I don't know, the almighty currency of the US dollar. 
green is a complex color to think with. In last month's episode, Professor Mahita Ikani reflected on money and the university. Today, I pick up from her conversation to think about how universities engage with the urgent climate crisis. Greenwashing, also called green sheen, is this form of marketing spin in which green PR and green marketing are deceptively used to persuade the public that an organization's products and aims and policies are in fact environmentally friendly. As universities grapple with what it means to take seriously the imperative to green our campuses and research practices, this episode explodes the color green to consider the importance of indigenous knowledge, to think about the relationship between ecological and social diversity, and how envy and competition shape our relationship to academic work. In this episode, I think out loud with the color green with three academic citizens. Our journey takes us from a conversation with a philosopher-turned-organizer, Dr. Alex Linferner, to reflecting on biodiversity with applied conservationist, Dr. Zoe Ntlega, and settle back into our bodies with narrative psychologist, Dr. Jill Bradbury. Come with us. My name is Alex Lenferner, and I suppose I'm a bit of a recovering academic in some ways. I finished off my PhD focusing on climate justice at the University of Washington in Seattle about three and a bit years ago now. And since then, I've been based in South Africa, which is where I grew up and was born, doing climate justice advocacy work with 350.org in the South Africa team. I also serve as Secretary of South Africa's Climate Justice Coalition. So Alex, tell me what comes to mind when you think green? What comes to mind when I think of the word green, and it might make me a, a bad environmentalist, but maybe it makes me a good one, is actually the, the idea of money. And maybe that is a good thing for environmentalists to be focusing on, after all, because it is the, the economic system that drives a lot of the exploitation of the environment and the people. So maybe thinking about green Firstly, in terms of money, is an important starting point too. But then, yeah, I think mm-hmm. there's also these other stereotypes around like environmentalism and like green being kind of a little fluffy and and so on that I guess associated. I guess a lot of the polluting industries have done a lot to try and put in place in our heads these stereotypes of what green and environmentalism is. So those stereotypes that are maybe use a discreditive movement also jumped to mind here. Reflecting on the relationship between the prevailing economic structure and environmentalism, Dr. Linferno walks me through the connection between environmental exploitation and economic models of extraction. South Africa is both the world's most unequal and also one of the world's most polluting economies. And those things are not unrelated, right? We are kind of like the heart of racial capitalism, in a sense, right? One of the the model kind of modes of development of racial capitalism. And what that meant is that we were exploiting both people and the environment at the same time. And I think that's what capital tries to do, is it tries to exploit excess labor. So the surplus value from labor is trying to exploit as much of that as possible, and also to take in as many ecological resources as possible and use that to build value for themselves. I think That's the same economic logic behind our economic system is to just extract as much as possible, whether it's from labor or the environment or from a feminist point of view, whether it's extracting unpaid care work that women do and not compensating that. 
So I think it's that same logic of the sort of capitalist system of exploitation that drives these interconnected crises. So it's no mistake that South Africa is both one of the most polluting and one of the most unequal, because it's driven very deeply by a very exploitative economic logic. When we think about, you know, the front lines of a lot of ecological degradation and exploitation, there's a lot of human suffering there. There's a lot of indigenous and frontline communities being violently um, removed from their land by big corporations. There's a lot of droughts in various different countries being driven by the climate crisis, driving increased poverty and inequality and migration. And so when we think about the real environmental issues, they are the bread and butter. They are what we need to survive. I like to say that the right to a safe and healthy environment is kind of the cornerstone of all other rights. And without it, the other rights begin to collapse. What these stereotypes have made us do is think that like this environmental right is kind of like this nice to have. And it's about ecosystems that are a little bit far removed from our everyday lives. When in fact, the environmental rights are really at the cornerstone of so much of what we, we depend on in a, a safe ecosystem, a stable climate. Without it, you know, we can't, you know, <laughs> we can't drink, we can't breathe, all that stuff, which is pretty fundamental for just simply living. An anthropocentric worldview encourages an instrumentalist view of nature, where the natural world has value only as it benefits humankind. This philosophical viewpoint shapes how we imagine humans as separate from and superior to nature. Environmentalists recognize that we stand to lose a great deal if we treat all of life on this planet as simply a resource for human exploitation. How then do we articulate a rights-based discourse not premised on human centeredness? Go back and forth on this, because I do think in some ways we do need to see ourselves in a lot of the environmental discourse. And there has been, you know, sometimes a little bit too much of a focus on, you know, charismatic animals and not connecting environmentalism to people. And I think that's especially the case when it comes to like, you know, histories of white conservation, where, you know, indigenous communities have been displaced in order to make space for game reserves that serve maybe minority white European interests. And so there, I think, you know, we have actually focused a bit too much on like misconceived notions of like pristine nature removed from humans, right? And so mm. that's kind of one weird misconception is like nature is removed from humans. And so that's like a strange sort of problematic colonial conception of nature that forgets about our connection to nature and then tries to like sanitize it of people. And the word sanitize is maybe... You know, because it's also tied to like racist, genocidal type of uh, policies too, historically. Mm. So there is some work to be done in reclaiming the human at the heart of nature, right? So in some ways, I want environmentalism to not be anthropocentric, but to put the human back in its relationship with the broader environment. And so we have to find that balance between saying like, yes, we as humans are part of the environment. And so we can't just remove these histories where there are often indigenous communities that have lived relatively, you know, harmoniously within the environments. And if you look at the studies, indigenous communities are custodians of the most biodiverse areas across the world, right? And are, you know, stewards in a way that's one would aspire to be in a lot of ways if you are thinking about what it means to live responsibly on the earth. But then, you know, on the other hand, I think there is sometimes the anthropocentrism can go too far and then humans become too central and we forget about our connections to nature. 
And so it is about that balance between like not taking humans out altogether, but ensuring that when we put ourselves in the picture of nature, we don't overestimate our importance and underestimate the importance of the broader ecosystems which we're part of. You just brought up indigenous knowledge, and I think indigenous knowledge is being acknowledged more and more as vital to sustainable climate justice interventions. I wanted to know, because your training is as a philosopher, right? How does indigenous knowledge alter the way you reflect on your training as a philosopher? How did it inform your training as a philosopher? If it did, I'm just curious how those Mm. things come into relationship with one another. Because indigenous knowledge is more embedded in that relationality with ecosystems, with community, that there is a sense of connectedness that comes with an indigenous sort of scientific perspective around our relationship to the ecosystem. And that's maybe to be opposed to a more westernized scientific vision, which was kind of more individualistic and kind of saw things as disconnected. And I think what Western science is starting to realize is what a lot of indigenous knowledge has known for a long time is the interconnectedness of our systems, right? So there's a really great paper by Danford Chibongotse, and he looks in the South African context, actually, at the philosophies that underpinned our relationship to nature. And I think a lot of people will be familiar with Ubuntu, which says that we are people through our relationships to our community, to other people, right? What Dan Pritchipongotze says in his paper is that it used to be the case that that sense of community was also an ecological community, right? So it was not just people, but also our relationship to the environment. And part of what colonialism did in order to dispossess people of their land and also make their break up their community relationships so that they would be more dependent on sort of migrant labor and working in sort of the mines and so on was to break down both the connection to the community and the connection to the land, right? And so part of the colonial vision was to break down that sense of connectedness and to make people more dependent on an economic system which would exploit them, essentially. Mm. And so I think that's where the indigenous knowledge is grounded in that interconnectedness, both with people and with nature. And that actually reminds me of a point that um, Kyle Pass-White makes, and I, his work is really where I recommend here, but is that, if we're thinking about decolonial environmentalism, right, it is about challenging like that economic exploitation and the logic of that. But part of that is by rebuilding that sense of community, right? And that's a much deeper decolonial challenge because, I mean, to rebuild that sense of community, those relationships and the philosophy upon which it is built, that really goes to the core of who we are and how we identify and relate to each other. So it's a really deep decolonial challenge to the existing system. So it's quite profound. Alex's work in the United States to Australia and South Africa reveals the pernicious relationship between democratic political processes captured by private corporate interests. When extractive and exploitative corporate interests capture state functions, it becomes crucial that academic institutions provide tools and spaces for students and academics alike to theorize and mobilize around who has the power to determine our collective futures. So I think the thing that I'd like people to be more attentive to about climate justice relates a little bit to this idea of the power struggle issue. Because if we see that climate justice is about a power struggle, then we need to get serious about how do we build power. And how do we build power is we need to build deep, strong coalitions, right? 
And that sometimes means that when we think about what it means to act on climate change, we can't have like a very narrow focus that just looks at greenhouse gas emissions and thinks that the system's okay, except we just need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Because that's sometimes what happens in the climate space. You kind of analyze the whole economic system, but you say, okay, everything's right. We just need to remove greenhouse gas emissions. And that's, that's how we solve the climate crisis. But that doesn't speak to the hearts of people that are being impacted by this economic system that drives the climate crisis in so many other ways. I think what we need to recognize is that climate crisis is connected to many other crises that people are facing. So in South Africa, we're trying to connect the climate crisis to the energy crisis that people are seeing with skyrocketing energy prices, with air pollution from energy harming them, with the fact that corruption connected to the coal industry is undermining our democracy in a lot of ways, is costing us deeply. So that's sort of an example there. We're connecting to mining affected communities, those that are on the front lines of extractivism, and really just how deeply impacted they are by all the resources that are needed to fuel a fossil fuel economy. And then, of course, we're trying to connect to some of the bastions of real social power historically, which has been trade unions. And unless we get serious about working with trade unions, even though, you know, they are facing a bit of a wane in their power, they are still some of the most powerful social forces. So how do we build connections and ensure that a climate justice program works for workers, creates jobs, creates decent jobs, um, and isn't just usurped by like big multinational corporations that will develop renewable energy, but, you know, exploit workers and, and not ensure that workers are taken care of as we transition. So I think maybe the short of it is that if we are in a power struggle, we need to connect our struggle for climate justice to a broader transformative program that can deliver on the real struggles that people are facing as part of a transformative program. And I think those things can come together and should come together. And maybe, you know, the positive element of it is that if you're looking at the economics and the science, Especially in a place like South Africa, where there's deep inequality, deep poverty, high, high unemployment, what's clear is we need to transform our economy here. And I think that holds in a lot of places across the world, too. And the science is also telling us of climate change that we deeply need to transform every sector of our society away from, you know, exploitation and greenhouse gas intensive modes of production. And so those two transformation imperatives need to come together and can come together. And I think that's where we need to build is the discontent that people have with this exploitative economic system tied into the discontent that people have with our planet being thrust into catastrophe and use those two discontents to push for much deeper transformation and build the power necessary to do so. It makes me think, you know, as a teacher and someone who works in higher education, I think the South African moment in 2015, 2016 was just such a watershed moment for us to think about how we alter the way in which we move in our research practice, in our teaching practice, in just our institutional cultures to make our institutions more just spaces. And, you know, I've seen calls for kind of greening campuses and I've seen calls for people considering, you know, how we travel to conferences, the kind of carbon footprint that we make when we are doing our particular researches. I'm curious to know, like, in 
your experience, both as a doctoral student, as a teacher, but also as an advocate for climate justice, how you see these changes being implemented, and you've worked across South Africa, the US and Australia, how do you see these different contexts, um, particularly in higher education, approaching climate justice advocacy? I think when we consider the, the sort of greening initiatives that happen in a lot of academic spaces, I think they're important. But I think with everything, we also need to be mindful of some of their limitations too. Right? And I think every institution should look at the ways that they are using resources, the environmental impacts that they have. Individuals need to do that too. But I think we also, again, need to situate this within the different class dynamics and who emits the most as well. Because if we look at the studies around you know, greenhouse gas emissions and ecological footprints, it is the wealthy individuals and the corporations that are emitting, you know, the majority of you know, emissions related to one's lifestyle. And academia can fit into that. There are high-flying academics that have massive footprints and they really should think about that. But then I think what we also need to look at is how it's the infrastructure and the systemic changes that need to be made so that people can and institutions can reduce their footprints and make those choices. It's much easier to, to change your lifestyle if you have alternative choices that are sustainable. You know, if somebody is, let's say, being gentrified out of a city and there isn't decent public transport and all of a sudden you slap a tax on petrol and you tell them, well, you need to find a green way to get into work, but all they have is their old car and that's all they can afford, right? There's no choice at all, right? And so we need to be making major investments in changing the underlying infrastructure of our cities, of our communities, so that we give people meaningful alternative choices. And I think this is where the industry loves to fight back against, is those sorts of investments that could make a real difference a lot of the time. And also, you know, the policies that could ban a lot of the problematic, polluting um, options that are there, so that we are focusing government money and attention on alternatives rather than like, you know, having a, a terrible polluting infrastructure in which people have no choice and then trying to say, okay, you have to make a different choice, but you have to pay for it yourself. And I think that's like the, the neoliberal environmentalism that comes through is you kind of focus on individual choice as if that what drives all economic systems when in fact, the bigger drivers are the infrastructure, the government spending, the industrial policy that's really does direct which way a nation goes and how an economy runs. And so individual and choices are, are important, but they must go hand in hand with those broader structural systemic shifts. For me, I'm often challenged to consider the fact that a lot of people do not share my same political orientations. And one of the biggest challenges I find is how to communicate in my research and in my teaching and in the podcast work that I do, how we find ways of working together with folks who have very different political orientations. And it's a huge ask, you know, the question that I'm asking you, because I think the way in which we're trained as academics is to be so-called objective or neutral but in a context of such vast power differentials, to be neutral is kind of to side with those with power. And I just wanted to know how you kind of square this impetus to find ways of 
working across different political orientations whilst also challenging power. My other hat that I wear is as sort of the general secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. So my job is to work across different interests and try to bring them together uh, on the common ground that we can find for, for a transformative program, right? And I think, you know, at the core of our mission is like a pretty transformative and radical climate justice view. But we don't want to be like purists about it too, right? So we have broad principles and broad transformative aims that we're trying to do together as a coalition. But I've really avoided, and maybe this is not the academic in me, but I have tried to avoid labels such as like, we are this form of socialism or we are this type of Trotskyites or anything like that. Because I think the more you go down to like very narrow political identities, the more you lose people. Right? Mm. And so we try to keep a broad tent while keeping a principal vision, if that makes sense. And that, I mean, that can go contrary to the academic desire to like really debate and like find your own point and your own stake in a space right i think we're trained as academics we have to like fight out with others to like get our position right and you know i've had my time in the academic trenches doing that but it's not great for movement building to bring those sorts of especially in mm-hmm. philosophy philosophy is a very combative like hey you're wrong in this way this way this way this way and i'm right in this way this way like it can be the wrong set of skills to bring to where you're trying to like find common ground and say like okay it's not necessarily an unacademic thing. It's a different type of academic exploration in some ways, because I don't think we should see academia as just adversarial knowledge finding. I think academia can also be sometimes in its best a place of finding common ground and finding where these shared values are and where we can work together. So maybe I'm critiquing more an adversarial form of academic engagement rather than academic engagement more generally, because I don't want to be unfair to, to all of academia on this front. And so I'm just curious how you orientate yourself or ground yourself, maybe it's even position yourself, when you get that kind of critique of kind of evangelizing, that how do we make the danger imminent and clear while also not coming across as zealots? And should we even be concerned that we are coming across as zealots is perhaps the larger philosophical question. (laughs) In some ways... You know, we've been asked to turn it down so much. We've been asked to, like, make our message more palatable. And in some ways, I think people only act like it's an emergency if they see other people acting like it's an emergency. Right? There's interesting social science studies that show, like, man, people will even sit inside a room filling with smoke and just kind of chill there if other people are sitting there just chilling there. So they set up these studies, right, where somebody's in a room, and like everybody else is like paid to be there. And so they're all sitting there while the room is filling with smoke. And then this other person who's not paid to be there just kind of like, oh, okay, other people aren't doing anything. So this seems like it's okay, right? But of course, if other people start to act, then they start to act too. And so I think sometimes we really do need to get out there and we should be having like, I mean, what the science is telling us on climate change, people should be out writing in the streets and breaking things and putting down, right? I mean, this is an emergency, man. Of course, there are strategic questions about, like, when does it make sense to do that? Like, don't just go out and, like, break whatever. Like, you're going to lose some some strategic followers if you're actually, like, you know, being rash and foolish about how you go about 
demonstrating that this is an emergency. So I think we need to be careful about that. And I think there are contexts where, you know, we have to try bring people in who aren't quite familiar with the fact that it's an emergency. And so you need to walk them through a pathway, right? You need to take them on a journey. But I, I think in public, we need to sometimes just be running around like it's an emergency. So that's maybe not a convincing balance that I'm trying to pose there, but I think it's contextual in some ways, but mm. also more broadly, it's time to get serious and we need to need more and more people acting like it's an emergency. So rather than us turning it down, we need everybody else to turn it up too. <laughs> How we speak to one another across different sectors and disciplines is crucial. I turn now to my conversation with Dr. Zoe Nkeko to consider how her work with the Rhino helps shed light on where we are in our discourse on conservation. I am Dr. Zoe Nkeko. First in her name, I am from Peter Marisburg. I'm currently working and living in the United States. I am wildlife practitioner, conservation practitioner, really, with experience on wildlife conservation. And I've had great privilege of working in some of the most awesome national parks in South Africa. I was based for five years in the Kruger National Park, working on large mammal conservation, particularly threatened species like the white rhino. I aspire to be a global conservationist because basically I want to solve global conservation issues, not just to be limited to any one species, but also just because I believe that when wildlife are thriving, humans will thrive. Dr. Ntlego's journey into conservation began with a seed planted when she was at primary school, where she learned about extinction. It would be a long journey for her to find her place in the space where she didn't see many people who looked like her doing scientific work in the field. I was registered for a zoology degree at Rhodes for my undergrad, and a geology degree, because even though I knew, I sort of had known for a long time that I wanted to get into conservation, I also knew that I didn't know any people that looked like me that were doing that work. So I had a backup, which was the geology, because I was like, this zoology thing doesn't work out. Geology should save me, because also I know there's lots of money in geology, but psych, it didn't work out. I hated geology. I found it boring, and I just didn't understand half the time it was either it was boring or I didn't know why these rocks mattered at all. So I carried on on the, on the zoology stream. But during undergrad, I actually thought I was going to be a game ranger because, again, I didn't know anyone who was doing this kind of work. So I thought to work with animals and save animals, you had to be a game ranger. And then I just like in third year, I started doing info interviews, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. But I was talking to people in the field and I realized, oh, you can do research, you can do all these different things. So when I decided that I wanted to go back to school for a master's, that's when I was like, okay, now is probably the time to start working on like these endangered species that I've been interested in for a very long time. I reached out to the regional ecologist for Shushu and Folozi Park. And I was like, what are the questions that you guys have, but currently don't have the resources to answer? I'm looking to do a master's. So I want to answer questions that are needed because I think part of my thing has always been in conservation. I want to do very applied conservation. So if there is a question that's needed right now, it's science is great. You can do science for the sake of science where you literally just want to know why does a giraffe do this? But 
the more I got into the field, I realized that you want to be answering direct questions that a manager wants to put into action to manage the species. So I started working with black rhinos, which are critically endangered. And then pretty much the rest of it is history because I was suddenly doing the thing that I thought I was going to do when I was in grade two or three, not necessarily saving them from extinction, but I was contributing towards our understanding of how we can stop or delay extinction of these species really. The rhino looms large in imaginaries around conservation in South Africa and I think globally. What do you make of the current approaches to the rhino as the symbol of endangered species? Basically in conservation, we've always done this where we use a very charismatic species to try and make people care. As you will probably know, there's I think it's WWF that uses the panda. Pandas are very cute and most people know, they know that symbol. They might not know it's WWF, but they know there's the company that uses that. So using rhinos as a symbol is sort of like drawing attention because charismatic species are charismatic for a reason. People know them, they know how to identify them. And I think there's a term in science where we say species are keystone species where their protection helps the protection of other species that are in the same land. So the hope, I guess, is to use rhinos to bring to the fore so that people know what's happening with conservation issues around the rhino. But my thinking is we hopefully not just going to drive the conversation to rhinos only, but to the bigger issues in conservation. And I think That's one of the issues that I have with using any one species as a symbol for anything, because basically it takes the attention away from every other thing and everyone is focused on this species. We draw the attention with that, but then we actually need to tell people the rest of the issue, because if all people get out of that is that a rhino is being poached and rhino poaching is bad, but they don't understand all the other conservation issues, then half the job is done. Rhinos is keystone species. If we lose the rhino, we will lose other species. And I think that's what's missing right now, that it's the rhino today, but tomorrow it's going to be another species if we're not learning the lessons that we need to be learning on how to manage these species properly, right? To ensure that poaching is reduced, animals are thriving. Today's survival, tomorrow is going to be something else. And if we do lose the rhino, there's a cascade of things that happen, right? Because rhinos, for example... When they feed, they create grazing lawns, so very short grasses where smaller species can then get in and use that same space. Whereas if you remove the rhinos, those grazing lawns are not there, which means those species are not going to be in that area. So your diversity is affected. So there's really a lot of lessons to be learned from this situation with the rhino, because if we can get it right with the rhino poaching and actually figuring out how to manage rhinos so that they thrive, then we'll use those lessons for other species as well. But also just saving the rhinos saves other species and saves us. And in your own work, you know, I wonder if like conservation, how it speaks to other issues around material struggles that communities face, especially those communities targeted into poaching. I'm really curious about that to understand how scientists working in the field come to work with or think with or alongside communities who are essentially targeted into the poaching? How sciences can do the work with communities as well is very important. And I think 
part of it is me as a conservationist. I'm not trained in the community part of things, but having done this research that I do, working on rhinos that are being poached and some of the questions I was asking was because of the poaching because I was interested to see how rhinos are going to continue being affected by climate as well as poaching, how their populations will fare with both of those, right? But poaching is done by people. My side ends where I know rhinos are poached, but I don't necessarily get trained on how to deal with the other side. But now we're seeing that we do need scientists to actually merge the two. We need to be doing the conservation on the side with, because that's what we are trained in the wildlife, but we actually need to also collaborate with social scientists who are doing the community work because I actually believe that communities are our biggest assets in any conservation intervention, right? Because when you think about it, these national parks are surrounded by people. These people with the history of the establishment of national parks in South Africa, most of these people actually lived inside where the national park now is. These are disenfranchised communities. And sometimes the relations are not great, right? Because they were taken out of these spaces so that wildlife can be protected. So the job of the conservation organization is to try and actually bridge the gap between the communities and the conservation organization And the government also needs to be a part of this, right? Because the people who poach don't just go to poach because it's fun, right? There is socioeconomic um, reasons why people are there in the first place. So yeah, you can arrest the poachers, but you're not solving the reason why they were there, right? Because if people are not able to make livelihoods in any way, arresting them doesn't help. When they come out, they're still going to go back to the same situation they were in. So we do need to be making better decisions and coming together with the communities want to find the solutions because I bet you people living outside protected areas know things that people inside protected areas working there don't know, right? Those are could be our best allies, but they're not because those relationships haven't been created, right? Mm-hmm. And I know organizations are starting to do that. And I think that's where we need to be going, where we are creating these beneficial relationships. Because that's another thing. It's like, I know it's my job as a conservationist to tell you why it's important for us to save rhinos. But I can tell you, but if I'm not showing you why they're important for you, that's just me saying they are. But if you don't see it, we need to start, people need to start seeing tangible benefits from having protected areas next to them. And that could be money, that could be jobs, it could be resources that they're able to get. You can't just expect people to take your word for it and say, it's really good for riders to be here for you without actually showing it. And mm-hmm. I think there's lots that can be done to create those relationships People could be allowed to get firewood in areas where they need firewood because it's there, right? You know, something as small as that could create a relationship with the community that will allow them to be our supporters instead of them being against us. Also, I don't even necessarily think people are against us. They just, they have other things that they care about. So if you're just going to tell me, oh, you should care about the rhino when I'm hungry, and that's all you're saying, that's not good enough. So conservationists, as much as we really do the wildlife side, we do need to collaborate with people that know how to work with people and bring them in. Because again, just historically how conservation has been done, 
communities are shut out, there's fences, they stay outside, the animals are inside, but animals don't actually stay inside. There's lots of human wildlife conflict because animals don't actually know that they live only in this part of the land. They want to get out and they get out there and they mess up people's gardens or whatever and endanger people's lives. And if there is no relationship between the conservation organization and the people, people are allowed to do whatever they want, right? Mm -hmm. Because the animal now came out to them. But if you have an understanding and you've created partnerships with the communities, you can already be talking about these in meetings where you're meeting with these people and talking about what are the issues that you guys are having as a result of living next to the national park. And the people have solutions. Because I think that's another problem with scientists and with just like researchers. We always think we know it all and we go and we tell the communities what they should be doing. You should be putting up a fence here. You should be doing this. You should be doing that. It's like, first of all, I don't have the money for that, Zoe. So whereas if you were to go to the communities and be like, hey, what are some of the problems you guys are facing? And they'll tell you, oh, we have issues with elephants coming out and maybe raiding our crops. And then ask them again, what have you tried to sort of dissuade them from doing that, that's a solution. But we, we normally don't, and we come up with these high-tech things that they should be using. They already have a solution that they're using. We just, you haven't asked them, right? Mm. And I think just having that two-way communication and partnership, honestly, not, oh, we know how to manage animals, so we're going to tell you what you should be doing, but rather we are all living here being affected and affecting the livelihoods of the people, but also being affected by the animals. What can we do to make sure that each side is happy? I think what you're also saying in this is making me think about we as people who work in universities and like this podcast is interested in questions in higher education. How do you think your training both in South Africa and in the U.S., has shaped the way you are approaching questions of conservation, particularly what I'm interested in is like science communication. For many people, if you say the word science, it's just like, ah, scary. I can't possibly understand. And scientists are really, really brilliant specialists in the science of what they're doing. But I'm curious as to your experiences, both in South Africa and the US, how science communication plays a role in your training? So I think the way science communication has worked for me, much less in the education that I received, actually, it was more having worked in applied conservation for South African national parks in the Kruger and seeing some of the issues that we're having and just knowing that there's communities right outside. In some areas, they literally, they share a fence with the national park. They're just that close. And when you talk to people just in normal settings where people socially, they ask, oh, what do you do? And you tell them what you do. First of all, what I realized was that science communication sounds very big, but literally anything is science communication. If you're chatting with somebody and you tell them about your work and they're intrigued and then they ask questions, that's science communication. It doesn't have to be this rigid in a certain way. Outreach can be done in any way, right? But what I realized was that one, people were very shocked that I work in the national park and I'm a scientist. On top of that, I'm a woman. People are very interested in finding out how did you even get into this, you know, because that's not that's not common, especially in South Africa. It's it's, it's becoming more common now, which is awesome. But like it's just usually men, white men, you know, so just 
people get very interested when they hear that you're, you know, you work there and then they ask questions. And I think for me, it's always been, I love talking, obviously. For me, it's always been, I'd like to read the room in the sense of what are you interested in, right? Because I can talk about science. I can talk about all the things that I'm studying my research, but if that's not interesting to you, there's no point. I, so I let the person who's asking the questions lead the way. And sometimes I, I make jokes about things that have happened in the field because like I worked with white rhinos, white rhinos will chase you to death. And I tell people that and people are just like, wait, what? And you know, people, which is so interesting. We all love hearing the stories where you almost died doing the thing that you do, you get paid to do. So those stories get people excited. And then, but then I can tell them why I'm even doing this, right? Because at the end of the day, it's like, I got chased by that rhino, but why are you doing that work to begin with? And then I can have that conversation be like, oh, we're actually trying to save rhinos because right now with all the poaching that's happening, and then you can have that conversation, right? So I think by the time I learned science communication, I was already doing it. And I think it's very important, again, to bring communities in because if they feel that, one, you are readily available to have these conversations. You're not a scientist that is like so far removed from them, like they scared to ask. If they see you as a person just like them, one, it's easy for them to reach out to you and to like to find out things. And I think education, when you do it in a low stakes situation where we just socialize and I tell you this one important thing, it's much better than if I'm standing at a podium and saying, and also we need to conserve this thing because that's a little bit too much. Whereas I'm just telling you, we're having a conversation and I'm telling you what my work is and you find it interesting because we were just having a conversation. But if I go to a community, I want to relate and I want them to relate to me. And so I'll reach them where they are. And it's not dumbing it down, which I do not like when people say, oh, we need to dumb the message down. You're not dumbing the message down. You're changing how you are communicating the message because like the CEO of Sandparks knows stuff about conservation, but they also don't know the p-values because that's not what's important to them. Just like the, the public also doesn't need to know the p-value, but they still need to know the message. What is the recommendation from your research? What are we supposed to be doing? You know, So you want the person to walk away having related to you, thought you were a person just like them, and you were easy to talk to, but then they learned something. I don't know what a p-value is. It's okay. It's a stats thing that, again, exactly. Like if I was to suddenly start talking about p-values, only people who are in science will know what that is. And I think that's what also makes science seem so restrictive and not accessible to people because people just like see these big words. You can have a whole conversation about anything in science, almost anything without using the big words. And yet the person will understand. And I think what's very important actually in having these conversations about like conservation and science is that even back in the day, conservation was being done. So you are from KZN just like me. That's what it's known as now. Before it became that, they had a portion that was called the King's Garden or something like that. And that part of the park was restricted for only the king to hunt it. But that area was actually working as a refugia for animals. So animals could run in to that part because it's protected, have their babies, the babies will grow, and then they'll migrate out and be hunted. And part of the rules for hunting in this park was 
you don't take anything that's young because that thing hasn't reproduced yet, right? So people have actually known about conservation. Even if you were to, to talk to your grandfather, they know conservation. The concepts of conservation are not science. They're not English. They The concepts of conservation have just, they've always been there. People know that if you go fishing, you don't take a tiny fish because you need to put it back so that it can grow, have babies, give you more, and then you can fish it. You don't hunt a small antelope because again, same story, you know? Mm. So these concepts, they're not new. They're not new. And I think that's the, the important thing about understanding with conservation. We always think of it as a Western thing, thing that Africans have to be taught. Africans know about conservation. They've been doing conservation. They just haven't been calling it conservation. Mm. The term conservation is new, but what they've been doing is exactly conservation. From the King's Garden to tending to our own, we ride this green journey to think with the psychology of envy. I turn now to my conversation with Dr. Jill Bradbury to reflect on the emotional charge of green. I'm Jill Bradbury and I'm from Johannesburg in South Africa. I'm what's called a narrative psychologist, which basically means that I'm interested in the ways in which our identities are storied and how our individual narratives of life are intertwined with uh, larger kind of historical processes and histories. So it's a kind of way of, of bridging the world of language and art with psychic life. And I find that uh, very provocative and interesting. And I'm currently working on a research project called NEST, which stands for Narrative Inquiry for Social Transformation. It's an interdisciplinary project, and we're working across a range of different uh, modalities in the arts and in the social sciences. And we're working with young people and with old people and with a few people in between. I love the color green. It's a color of movement and life and energy for me. And I think it's primarily because it feels to me like the color of the landscape of my childhood. I come from... KZN from Durban and so kind of the lushness of tropical kind of vegetation feels sort of yeah it feels like earthy and home and I particularly love trees because they represent for me a kind of a playful space from my childhood I love to climb trees it was one of my favorite things but also the trees have this kind of they're both rooted and strong and and grounded but they also have branches that reach up and out. And so that kind of combination of stability and strength and a kind of fluidity and life that's suggested by the branches and the leaves feels beautiful to me. Your reflection of such positive connotations in green and life and lushness, in our everyday discourse, we talk of going green with envy, mm-hmm. right? As a psychologist, how might you define jealousy? Because we, we often think of it as just something that's bad or something that's an antisocial feeling. But I want to get a sense from you how you make sense of jealousy, envy. So what I do think is really interesting is, is that, of course, the idea of being green with envy or going greener about the gills kind of is, is a very different kind of feel for that, for that colour than I've just described. And I suppose that's linked with the idea that the emotion might in fact make us feel ill. 
that's kind of important when we think about emotions. So typically in psychology, emotions of any description are thought of as opposite to rationality, opposite to cognition or thought, like a completely different kind of psychological experience. And also that it's something that's also distinct from the body, that it's something in the mind, if you like, or if you want to be slightly more metaphorical, in the heart. Whereas this idea of envy being green links us to the stomach, I think, to the the feeling of the body as a whole. And it makes me think of a term that I think is very useful in terms of thinking about the connections between psychological life and the body, which I think are very, very definitely intertwined and enmeshed rather than two distinct kinds of realities. And and that's the word metabolized. So there's some way in which our thinking and our feeling is kind of processed in the body, becomes part of the body. It has kind of visceral connotations and it has this feeling of the whole person experiencing this envy. Envy and its embodiedness in our experiences as academics is often kind of not discussed. Um, I think what I'm pointing to is both in relation to this emotion or affect of, of envy, but in fact in relation to all the dimensions of our experience, that the body is is not an accessory, neither is it just a vehicle or a kind of container for these things, but it is is it is who we are. And I think, like you describe, often in the kind of cerebral sort of work that we do, that that is kind of like invisibilized or negated. And of course, all kinds of aspects of our bodies are important in terms of, of how we engage in knowledge making and in interaction with one another, et cetera, et cetera. And I suppose for me, the pandemic and the whole move to working from home and distance and all these things has really kind of like exacerbated those those kind of divides in, I think, very negative ways. So although the anxieties and pressures associated with being a particular kind of body, whether that body is is black or white or male or female, all those kind of dimensions of our embodied being and our identification in relation to to others are, of course, important dimensions of our interactions in the world. No less so the sort of like sensations and experiences of of how we feel in spaces as much as what we think about and what we say are extremely important. I do think that that envy, of course, can be quite debilitating and quite problematic. But I do also think that it points to something less negative, and that is the idea that we identify with one another and that we might see somebody else's achievements or activity in the world as aspirational, as something that that could be me. In that way, I think that envy is not always entirely negative. It may be something that actually speaks to a sense of connection or relationality between us. So I don't think that we we feel envy of things that simply feel as if they've got nothing to do with us. So envy is usually triggered or arises in our responses to someone else when we when we look at that person's life and think that could be me. So in that way, in some sort of strange 
way we could think of it as a mobilizing kind of response or emotion? In academia, we are seldom encouraged to reflect on ourselves as feeling beings, rather only as thinking and doing agents. Dr. Bradbury walks me through how we can start to think about emotions in our academic institutions. Although an emotion is something that is experienced by the individual person, and it's an interior thing, it's, it is a psychological kind of internal feeling, okay? It is not disconnected from the social world, and it's not disconnected from others. I think that, um, you know, to draw it specifically to the, the context of, of academia and to think about envy in the context of, of academic life, there are two kind of things that, that I'm thinking about. The one is what you've just been saying for us to, to think about ourselves as embodied beings in that space. We're not simply processes of information, whether that be for the production of knowledge or for the transmission of knowledge in classrooms. That kind of like notion that it's just a cognitive process is clearly completely inaccurate. And that the experience of space, as you said, and the experience of our bodies in space in relationship with others is actually at its core um, part of, of the process. It's not it's not extraneous at all. And I suppose there's there's some element in which, you know, that that idea of the, the ivory tower or the the notion of a campus or a space in which academic work, intellectual work happens is about an inclusion of some bodies and some minds and an exclusion of others. There is that kind of like, I suppose, a feeling of welcome inclusion for those of us who managed to make it through the gates. Mm -hmm. And I think that for many students, and now I'll speak specifically about the South African context, that idea of being able to, to become part of an elite institution for black students in particular, is is really quite remarkable. And it kind of feels like a like a recognition and an inclusion. And yet we know that once you're in, all kinds of other mechanisms of exclusion operate on a daily basis and that there are all kinds of multiple ways in which you're made to feel that you're here but you don't really belong. And I think that that, that idea of, of how we carry that in our bodies, who looks as if they should be there, who feels as if they should be there, is a kind of very important underlying component of how it makes it possible for us to be, I'll use the word productive rather than successful in terms of our engagement in academic work. So that's the one kind of element I think is important. The other is to think about how the structures of social organization produce particular kinds and forms of psychological experience in particular ways. And I would think that envy is very closely linked to competitiveness and to the ways in which, well, I think academic life always and everywhere, but very particularly in the 21st century and very particularly in certain spaces is framed as a kind of, yeah, it's overwhelmingly competitive. And it's about individual performance, individual proof of your worth and your, your value and your kind of ability on a constant basis. A sort of treadmill, a frenetic kind of attempt to, to always do better and faster 
which I think is in fact quite counterproductive in terms of being able to produce good work. So the idea of thinking and reading and mulling over ideas, well, there seems to be no time or space for that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm feeling the kind of corporatization, commodification, all these words that we've been using for a while seem to just be intensifying where academic life is really about performance, about outputs, all of these things, as opposed to a space for inquiry, for deep thinking, for troubling the kind of taken for granted and for thinking about how things might look different or sound different or be different. It's very hard to do that kind of work. How do we work with the envy because it comes up, it is here already, instead of it being debilitating and shaming and like you shouldn't feel its feeling, how might we start thinking about using it as a, a bridge towards recognition of like our relationality? So the easy answer, which is not necessarily an easy thing to do, but seems to be a thing that is becoming more and more about my mode of engaging with these kinds of issues. And that is to create spaces outside of the formal structures where one can kind of nurture those forms of relationship. Where it's possible, for example, to talk about failure or loss or grief or even ordinary seemingly unimportant sorts of troubles like having a journal article rejected. So I do think that there are increasingly, particularly women in the academy, who are finding those kinds of spaces to produce for each other more nurturing kinds of engagements. And maybe that becomes more possible when we are in relationship with each other across disciplines and across institutions In other words, in spaces where, in fact, the idea of competition is less primary. So I don't know, but that for me has been extremely important in terms of finding those other kinds of sets of connections with people who I would call not just colleagues, but but more like friends. But but they're not just friends because of so, some of my friends are not academics, um, mm. <laughs> and they're, they're in that those spaces it's not so easy for for those things to be dealt with. And I think that students too are finding these kind of spaces. Part of the social movement was, of course, a political agenda to confront institutions and the state. But I do think that in the process, there were also these alternative kind of forums for different kinds of ways of engaging with one another that students made for themselves. Sometimes those can also be quite difficult spaces. So I don't want to suggest that those spaces are all kumbaya, but they can provide spaces where, where we can explore other ways of engaging with each other. Mm. So I suppose that's the that's the easy answer, which is not that easy, as you can hear. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that actually we still have to find ways to challenge the structural things that make for these kinds of alienating experiences and the exclusionary kind of effects. And those structural things can be big and they can also be quite, they can be quite mundane, like bureaucratic structures that are exclusionary. 
I mean, financial exclusion is for me a very, very important issue. I mean, it's primarily in relation to students, but it's not only. It's also about who is able to take this particular sorts of knocks that one must take when one's starting out in academia, contract work, unstable kinds of jobs, or at least the kind of like long sort of apprenticeships that we envisage for doing PhDs full time, all those kinds of things that are very problematic because it narrows who the scholars of the future are. And those structural things are imperative for us to address. And I think that those structural things can sometimes make us ill in the sense of envy that becomes, in fact, completely debilitating, where one can see that for other people, certain things are possible, but they're not actually possible for me. And then that becomes rather than it being a kind of an impetus for identification or for aspiration, it makes things feel less and less possible. From greening out there to reflecting on our bodies and how we situate them in place, green is productive hue to think with. I'm drawn to the work of somatic abolitionists and scholars of embodied practice, such as Adrian Marie Brown, who encourage us to reflect on the ways that we use greening and nature metaphors in our everyday life. We know now that the language of conservation can be manipulated to construct barriers and keep others out. Yet, greening can also be a metaphor that invites us to consider ideascapes as enriched by both bio and human diversity. Do join us next month as we explore these ideas further with the color blue. It's time to read the room. Here's what we've been reading lately. Sleep because I write what I like. And I think it's really important, even though he doesn't touch on environmental justice, he writes about black theology, um, which challenges like this sort of neoliberal individualization of structural problems. And there he's talking about in the South African context, how like black South Africans are often blamed for their own poverty, blamed for the social ills which were created by a very intentional structural apartheid system. And I think the same can be applied often to the environmental space, where it's like we're often blamed as individuals for creating the climate crisis, you know, what's your footprint and so on. But we also need to think about what are the structural factors that have been created by powerful industries and governments to lock us into this polluting pathway. So I think we can take some of that black consciousness and black theological critique and bring it into the the climate justice space. The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South and beyond. Create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences, and to create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice, broadly conceived. We welcome your feedback, opinions, and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website, www.the-academic-citizen.org. This episode was produced by myself, Taryn Mackay. 
It was sound edited by Victoria Delahap. Fumani Mabohuane provides marketing and communication support. We thank Dr. Alex Linferner, Dr. Zoe Nleka, and Dr. Joel Bradbury for contributing to this episode. Mm-hmm.